Friends, good morning. The Lord be with you. Welcome to this online worship service of Fifth Reformed Church. And if you found us somehow out there in interweb land, uh, welcome to you as well. We're in the midst, now drawing close to the uh, conclusion, of a series of seven sermons on the seven letters of Revelation 1 through 3, the seven letters that Christ, the risen Jesus, in power and glory, addresses to his churches, uh, these seven little communities of faith uh, spread throughout the major cities of the Roman province of Asia, what we would call today Western Turkey. And taken together, they really represent a composite of the ideal that Jesus is looking for in every one of his churches. Uh, they're universal, these messages, not certainly directed to a particular time and place, but nonetheless appropriate for all of us to hear. So today we come to the letter to the Church of Philadelphia, and as we do that, I invite you to pray with me. Lord, thank you for your word. It's living and active. It pierces our hearts. It opens our minds. It shows us your glory, and it tells us what we need to be and do to be loyal followers of you. So we ask you to do all those things now in this part of your word and help us to take it to heart and live it out in your name. Amen. So the letter begins, like all the letters, with a description of the one who sends it. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Philadelphia was, in some respects, the, the newest and smallest of the seven cities to which these letters were sent. It was actually founded in... Uh, the middle of the second century BC. So by the time John's writing, it's more than two centuries old, nevertheless, the youngest of those cities. Uh, and it was founded by a Greek king from Pergamum, uh, a man named Attalus or Attalus II, uh, who was nicknamed Philadelphios. Apparently, he and his brother were close, they were tight. Uh, Philadelphia. Philadelphios means lover of one's brother. And I have a hunch that he got that nickname because that was such an unusual thing for kings in the ancient world. Often they killed their brothers because of uh, the, the desire to eliminate any potential rivals for power. In fact, if you've been following along in fifth's year-long Bible reading, you're in the latter stages of Second Chronicles where we read about Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, who did just that. He killed all his brothers as soon as he had consolidated uh, power and his hold on the throne of Judah. So this was commonplace, and, and I have a hunch that uh, Atalus was unusual in the regard in which he held his brother and was held by his brother. So they called it Philadelphia after his nickname, the original city of brotherly love. And it was founded in a strategic place in order to spread Greek or Hellenistic language and culture into the interior of Asia Minor. 
So uh, the cities along the coast had been Greek for centuries. But when Alexander the Great swept through the whole of the ancient world, at least from Greece to India, in conquest, uh, Greek culture was established further afield. And so many, many places throughout the ancient world became Hellenized. They adopted Greek culture, Greek customs, Greek language, Greek philosophy. Which is why, incidentally, the New Testament is written in Greek. And Philadelphia was an outpost, a kind of mission center for uh, that whole uh, business. So Jesus addresses the church here, and he's going to call it a very different kind of mission center, also influential in its location, but spreading a different message. And he begins, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Jesus begins here, as he always does, with a statement, I know your works. And uh, that can cut one of two ways, actually. In the previous letter to the church in Sardis, it cut like a knife. I know your works. In fact, Philadelphia and Sardis were sort of the reverse sides of, of the coin. Sardis apparently was a big booming church full of apparent life, had a big reputation. Uh, and Jesus says, I know your works. You look like you're a, a big deal, but you're dead. Whereas to Philadelphia, a church that's small and apparently struggling. So interesting, isn't it, how we tend to judge by size, including in the church, numbers equate to life and vitality and importance. But Philadelphia is little, it's weak, it's poor, most of its members probably drawn from the lower classes, and yet it was strong in endurance. It was faithful. And when Jesus says, I know your works to Philadelphia, he means it as nothing but encouragement. I'm here with you. I know all about it, and I approve of you. So in the body of the letter, he promises them four great things. And I just want to work through those one by one, beginning with the first. 
he promises them opportunity. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. No one is able to shut it because he's holding the key. And the, the image of an open door naturally suggests opportunity. In the Greek world, opportunity actually was personified uh, as so many things were. The gods themselves were often personifications of emotions or, or uh, uh, virtues. But opportunity was pictured as a, a young man who had a long forelock of hair, a, a, almost a ponytail growing out of his forehead, but who was bald in back. So you get the point. As opportunity confronted you, you better snatch and grab it right away because if it's past, it's too late. So opportunity, an open door, but opportunity for what? Uh, the image is used elsewhere in the New Testament. If you're familiar with uh, some of the other letters of the New Testament, you maybe can recall some of these references. But it's, it's compared uh, several times by Paul to opportunity for ministry, opportunity for mission, opportunity for the gospel. In fact, uh, John Stott, the wonderful evangelical uh, commentator, preacher, writer, has uh, a little set of devotions on these seven letters, and he assigns one word to each letter. The, the word he assigns for the letter to Philadelphia is mission. They had an open door. So Paul, writing, for example, in 1 Corinthians 16, says, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. Paul's writing to the Corinthians from the city of Ephesus where he's settled for several years uh, to plant churches there and in that region. I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries. Writing later to the Corinthians from 2 Corinthians 2, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, a door was opened for me in the Lord. And even at the end of his life, writing from prison now to the church in Colossa, uh, in Colossians chapter 4, Paul writes, Pray for us also that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. So an open door for the gospel. The key of David that Jesus mentions, uh, the one who has the key of David, is actually referenced in the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah where uh, a, a little story is told of a man named Eliakim who was appointed as a new steward over the royal household and, and Isaiah says he was given the key of David and he could open and no one could close and he could shut and no one could open. So the key combined with the door uh, symbolizes the idea of opportunity and authority combined with it. The door of the kingdom is open by Jesus. We're invited to go in. We're invited to proclaim that same message of uh, the gospel, that salvation is found in Jesus Christ. Repent and believe and you'll be saved, you and your household, Paul says to the Philippian jailer. So. Uh, this is the first great promise to the Philadelphians. They have a wide scope before them. 
as they have come in through the door of the gospel uh, and belong now to Jesus and his people so they can share that message far and wide. This is how Stott expresses it. In the case of Philadelphia, perhaps the open door was a reference to the city's strategic location. Situated in a broad and fertile valley, it commanded the trade routes in all directions. So what the city had been for Greek culture, it was now to be for the Christian gospel. No one could shut this door. Let the Church of Philadelphia seize its opportunity and go out boldly with the good news. The second thing Jesus promises to the Christians in Philadelphia is vindication. We've seen uh, in an earlier letter, uh, the letter to the church in Smyrna, a reference to the synagogue of Satan, the pseudo-Jews or so-called Jews who uh, think they're the people of God and are uh, shutting you out, have turned on you. And I mentioned in that earlier message, we have to be awfully careful here and think our way back into the situation given the terrible history of anti-Semitism in the church, aided and abetted by the church. So um, these are phrases that make us cringe given uh, the experience of world history. But nevertheless, at the end of the first century, we must picture the roles reversed in a place like Philadelphia. It's the church that's tiny and beleaguered and put down and struggling and despised. And it's the Jewish community that's wealthy, influential, and powerful. And they are accusing. That's what the name Satan means, the accuser. They are accusing, they're slandering these Christians. And you can pretty well imagine how it must have gone. Some of them were Jewish Christians. They had converted to Christ from Judaism. And they were called turncoats and traitors. And you've betrayed your family. You've betrayed your people. You've betrayed your heritage. You've betrayed your God by following this new way. And you Gentiles, who do you think you are? To claim membership in the people of God as Gentiles? You're dogs. You're nothing but outsiders. You will never belong. And Jesus says to this little community of people who've given up everything in order to follow him, someday they'll know. Someday those who've turned against you will know that I have loved you. They will come and bow at your feet. And it's a breathtaking reversal of the prophecies of the Old Testament because the great vision in the prophets, especially in Isaiah and Ezekiel, is that in the end times, the, the nations, the Gentiles, would stream into Jerusalem and they would bow down before Israel and Israel's God in the knowledge that here was where the true God was to be found. And Jesus says, Israel now is a new community. The true Israel is the community of those who belong to me. And I, I think of this in connection with the many people I have known 
who've come out from the traditional religion of their family and their country and their society and have become followers of Jesus and have paid a price because of that. And I want you to know that there will come a day when anyone and everyone who's ever slandered you or mocked you or dismissed you because of your faith in Jesus is going to learn the truth. And pray God that they might learn the truth because they themselves, in the end, have been brought to him as well. And as we all kneel at his feet together, our enemies will turn to us and they'll say, you know, you were right. You were right about Jesus all along. So vindication. And then in the third place, protection. Jesus says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Let me just stop at this point and ask uh, a question. On a scale of 1 to 10, how worried are you right now? Pretty worried? 8? Maybe a 9? Maybe all the way to 10? Personally, I'm only at about a four or a five, but that's mostly because I don't pay much attention to what's actually going on. I, I'm very good at avoiding reality. But there's a lot to be worried about right now, isn't there? We've got worries of every kind. We've got physical worries, we've got medical worries, we've got social worries, we've got school worries, we've got church worries, we've got financial worries, we've got political worries. And Jesus' word to his church is, hang in there. Yes, it's worrisome. He talks about a great trial or ordeal that's going to come and fill the whole earth. If there ever was a word for our time, here it is. In fact, it's, it's a different word. We saw, again, in the letter to the Smyrna Christians, that they were warned about the tribulation that was going to come. That was suffering for the sake of Jesus, Christian suffering, suffering for the name. But here the word refers more to a universal trial or test, or in one place in the New Testament, it's translated fiery ordeal. It's going to fill the earth. Everybody's going to face it. It's universal. And it comes in various forms, but what it means is trouble. What it means is suffering. What it means is loss. In fact, this little reference to the ordeal or the test that's going to fill the world is a direct link between uh, the letters in these first chapters and the whole rest of the book of Revelation. Because the rest of the book of Revelation, with all its signs and all its visions and, and mysterious beasts and beings, it's really about a, an ongoing, increasing outpouring of the judgment and wrath of God on a wayward and sinful world as, as a means of calling out to that world to come back to him. 
suffering, somebody has said, is a megaphone in which God shouts to a, a wayward world. So the Philadelphians are promised that as they have kept to Jesus, so he will keep them no matter what, no matter what they face. They are secure in him. And finally, the fourth thing that the, this church has promised is a place and a name. And another of these uh, wonderful images uh, that fills this letter and the others, the one who conquers, Jesus says, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. A pillar in the temple of my God, Jesus says. That's what I'm going to make you. Um, you probably heard uh, or even used the phrase pillars of the church. He or she was a real pillar of the church. And what we mean by that are the people that we count on, the people we really depend on. Uh, Jennifer Holberg was sharing at our Evensong service this past, a, a week ago Wednesday, and uh, ha had a wonderful message. But at the beginning, she talked about the family that she grew up in that was extremely active and faithful. And she said, if the doors of the church were open, we were there. Well, that's, that's a pillar of the church. We count on them. We depend on them. But that's actually not what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying he's going to make us pillars of the church. He's saying he's going to make us pillars of the temple. And the pillars of the temple were not structural elements. You can read about them in the Old Testament, in the account of the building of the temple. They were for adornment. There were two of them. They were huge, over 30 feet tall. And they had names. One was called Jachin, and the other was called Boaz. And they stood on either side of the door, gloriously carved and ornamented. So what Jesus is saying here is not, I'm going to give you another job to do in the church. I'm going to depend on you. He's saying there will be a time when you won't have to work anymore because the church's work will be done, but you will still belong. You will be there. You will have the name of God and the name of the people of God, the city of God, and my name written upon you. The city of God. St. Augustine wrote that, his greatest work, when the Roman Empire was crumbling around him. And he wrote it to underscore the fact that the city of God, by which he meant the people of God, the new Jerusalem, is eternal and nothing can take it away or take us from it. Who is there, he said, who would not yearn for that city out of which no friend departs and into which no enemy enters? 
What Jesus is really saying here is that the end for us will be glory, eternal glory, his own name written upon us. We'll, we'll belong to God. Like you write your name, maybe in a new book, it's a, it's a sign of ownership. God the Father, God's people, God's Son, that threefold name written on us as pillars in the temple. C.S. Lewis uh, preached a sermon during World War II in the dark days of World War II, which he called the weight of glory. And uh, it's a powerful thing, one of the most powerful, powerful things he ever wrote. And the conclusion of it has spoken to me for many, many years, where he writes this. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Friends, that's what you're going to be. It may be hard to imagine it now, but we will one day, when God has finished his work in us, be everlasting splendors who reflect his glory. So hang in there. When you're tired, when you don't want to go on, when you're sick of it all, when you feel like you need a break, when you're tempted to wonder if all this Bible stuff is even true, hang in there. Because behold, one way or another, he's coming soon. Amen. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we love you. We long to live with you and for you. We pray in the words of the hymn, finish your new creation, pure and spotless let us be. Let us reflect your glory and look forward to our eternal home with you. And we pray it in your name, amen.